Let's bow together in prayer, please. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the privilege of coming before you in worship, singing your praises, offering our prayers, hearing your word. Lord, as we open your scripture today, I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts, teaching us not only its meaning, but its application in our own lives. Help us to hear it and to do it, to be encouraged in the process. Meet with us now and teach us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this coming Saturday, we're having, we're starting a series of meetings to talk about how we can be better as a church, particularly in the area of reaching out to new people. Those meetings continue into early Sunday afternoon, and in preparation for those gatherings, I want to divert today from the First Corinthians study that we're doing and, and, and take us to a very important passage in the book of Isaiah. Our text is Isaiah 55, 1 through 7. This is a text that gives us really important insight into the God that we are serving, what He is like, and how we can be like Him what we will be doing the more we become like him. Let's read Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 7. Scripture says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear, and come to me. Listen, that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation that you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, and he will abundantly pardon. Now, this is a very familiar passage to many of us. It uses metaphors of food and drink to represent having your spiritual needs met. In the physical realm, you get hungry and thirsty, or you need food and drink. And, and you know what that, that feeling of needing it is, and you know how it can be satisfied. And so those are the metaphors here about your spiritual well-being. You need something, and some things will satisfy, and some things will not. This is a popular passage in part because it contains so much hope, but it also is popular because of the insights it gives us into how good and generous God is to us. Now, the prophet Isaiah recorded all of the words in this book and all of the words in our text for today, obviously, But the first five verses of this book are not Isaiah's words. He's quoting someone. He's quoting God himself. These are not words that the prophet spoke, but that he heard God speak, and he wrote down the quote. What What we see in these words from God is a God who calls people to himself. 
Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. God isn't saying go. Go somewhere and do something. Go somewhere and get something. Go somewhere and be something. He's not saying do this, do that. Check off the lists. Check off the tasks on the list. He's he's saying come. Come into his presence. And you don't need money. There isn't any cost. Everything you need to be satisfied is free when you come to him. Now, it appears that this this call begins with a shout to get your attention. Ho! Everyone who thirsts. God is extending a gracious invitation to anyone who will listen. This is a giving God. This is a God who is ready and willing to bless. Now, that's not so because God is under some obligation. He isn't obligated to bless anyone. This isn't about God having to do something or needing to do something or being compelled in some way to do something. He's God. He does as he pleases, and it pleases him to bless his creatures. And so he calls us to himself. And that's why this kind invitation is offered so near the end of a book that is just full of warnings and judgment. God acts based on his character, not based on what the people he's talking to happen to be doing. Israel wasn't getting much right during Isaiah's ministry. They were sinful and wicked and hard-hearted and rebellious, and yet God puts this hope and this invitation to them because his actions are based on his character, not the character of the people that he calls. He calls us because he's willing to bless us. And when he blesses us, he's acting in spite of the things we have done, not because of the things we have done. People are fully responsible for the consequences of their rebellion against God. The marvel is not that somebody might miss these blessings and be punished. The marvel is that these blessings are available to anyone because God is gracious and kind. And in keeping with his character, he calls out to people and invites them to himself. He's compassionate. He's ready to grant grace. He's ready to forgive sin. He's ready to bless. Now, when you're faced with such an invitation from God and you think about what what this has to mean, you realize pretty quickly that not everybody is receiving these blessings. Some people don't have this. So what kind of people is God calling out to? Who's he talking to? We get an idea of that from the next thing God says. In verse 2, he says, Why do you spend your money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy. So God is calling out to people who are pursuing something that will never satisfy their needs. Money here is a metaphor for energy, an investment, a use of resources in pursuit of something 
God is calling out to people who are using up their resources, trying to get their needs met, and it's not working, and it's never going to work because they're investing in something that cannot succeed. They're spending their money for what is not bread, their wages for what cannot satisfy. What a picture that is of the fallen world. People are are making an effort. Everybody's making an effort. They're committed to it. They're pursuing it with tremendous energy. Years ago, I I encountered a, a series of homeless people, and I learned pretty quickly that most, well, all the ones I've met, and maybe all of them, certainly most of them, that their thing is they're going to be independent. And they would rather be on the street begging for food than be told what to do. And so they think, my being independent is what's going to satisfy my needs. My having my own way, my doing what I want to do, and everybody else get out of my life and shut up, they'll do that until they die on the street. They're so committed to pursuing what they think is going to satisfy. But it doesn't satisfy, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. People are making an effort. They're working hard to try to meet their needs the way they see them. They're dedicated to to whatever it is they're pursuing, wealth or safety or whatever, significance, power, whatever it is they think is going to do it. They're chasing it. Most people realize that, that they have some sort of spiritual need, and many are making an effort to have that kind of need met, and they're doing what they think will help. And most of the time, what they're doing can never help. Now, we should note that Isaiah wrote to the nation of Israel at a time when the vast majority of the people in Israel were very religious. They were pursuing Judaism with varying levels of commitment, but pretty much everybody was pursuing it and and would have called themselves the children of God almost to a person. And yet they were doing the wrong things. And Isaiah just pounds on them over and over and over again. Just read the first few chapters and you get an idea of how bad it was, how much God hated their religious hypocrisy. But they were pursuing, wasting their resources without having their spiritual needs met. And God is calling out to those people, the people who are doing it wrong, people with needs that are not being met because they're wasting their lives chasing what can never satisfy, what isn't even plausible. And God is inviting them to come to him and have their needs met. Now this God who calls is calling out to people with needs, to people who are doing the wrong thing, and he's calling out to people who are not already listening to him. Verse 2 says, listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. They're not already listening to him. He's calling people who need to listen. They're not being careful to attend to what he is saying to them. They have needs, they want their needs met, but they're doing it wrong. 
seeking answers in the wrong places. It's not working. They're not noticing that it's not really ever going to work. And so God calls out. He he continues that appeal in verse 3, incline your ear to me. Change your disposition. Stop resisting. Stop tuning me out. Don't just listen for a minute and then go back to the way it was. Incline your ear to me. This call even tells us what's at stake for those who are not listening. Verse 3 goes on, listen that you may live. So God is calling out to people who are not going to survive unless they start to listen. It's only in listening to him that they may live. How many of your neighbors are in this exact condition? How many of the people you work with and see when you go places in town, hungry and thirsty for something they do not have, but making the wrong decisions, pursuing false promises, wasting their resources, wasting their time, which is wasting their lives, and not getting what they want, what they long for, what they legitimately need. Now, they gain all sorts of things, but they're not satisfied. Instead of turning away from futile things, people pursue them with more energy as those things fail them. This is how our governments tend to work all over the world. It's the same. You take something that has never worked in all of history, and you start a program and spend a lot of money on, because this time we're going to make it work. And then, when it doesn't work, even in our own experience, because it never has worked and it never will work, our politicians say to us, we just need to increase the budget and it'll work. A few trillion more will solve this problem. That's how unbelievers do in these things they're chasing that don't satisfy. Let me give it more energy. Let me make more of a commitment. I know it'll work. You know, there's no amount of effort that will turn the wrong pursuit into the right pursuit. If you're traveling in the wrong direction, it doesn't help to speed up. It won't work. And yet, everyone apart from Christ seems to think that whatever it is they're chasing after is eventually going to satisfy them somehow, despite their own experience, despite everyone else's experience. And we serve a God who is shouting out, calling those people to himself to listen and to have life. And he's ready to give it even to the worst of them. I thought of a, a strange thing that hadn't, hadn't occurred to me in years, but I'm going to tell you the story because it fits here. Every fall, there's a fair in our town, and we can see it when we leave the area our neighborhood's in. You've got the rides and the lights, and the main feature at this county fair is this really small traveling carnival that shows up with trucks and trailers and puts the rides and the flashy things together. And so there are rides and there are, are 
trinkets and there are booths and there are games and all kinds of stuff. And it was a lot of fun when our kids were small enough for it to seem big to them. And, and one year we were there right after they opened for the day and there weren't many people in there yet, which was, you know, when we wanted to be there. And kids are small. You got to get out of here early. <laughs> so there was this guy who had a booth and he was shouting out, trying to get people to come and spend money. Now, it seemed even more out of place because there were just a few people milling around, but he sounded a lot like Dick Van Dyke in that scene in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang where he's yelling to get everybody to come get a haircut with that machine he had. He changed his voice like that, and he's just chattering. Well, I tuned that out, you know, but, but I was standing close enough that he thought I was in range, and I'm waiting for a couple of kids to finish a ride, and just standing there, and it's just chattering and chattering and chattering. And I glanced over at the guy and realized there is nobody anywhere near him but me. <laughs> and he had gone on and on with nobody around but me. And I looked at him, and he just, he just stopped, and his shoulders slumped. And he said, this isn't doing anything for you? <laughs> and I laughed, and I said, no offense, man. <laughs> But that's not going to work on me. And he just kind of shook it off. <laughs> but I'm studying this text, and I thought of that poor guy. And I'm like, just because somebody's shouting at you doesn't mean you ought to listen. Should you listen to this call? Or is this a carnival barker trying to market his business? I mean, how do you know? He says you can live if you listen. That's a kind of a big deal. Should you believe him? Now, actually, you should. I think we all know you should. Deep down, everybody knows, even in their rebellion, that God is real and that they're in trouble with him. Romans 1 talks about the people who are trying to kid themselves and, 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 and not, not acknowledge the truth of who God is and that they have a problem with him. And in Romans 1, it describes them as suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They know they're trying to keep a lid on it. So God calls out, and that's enough. He's the creator. He's the almighty. You're the creature. You, you have offended him. If he's willing to have you anyway and forgive you, you better come. But God is so gracious that he doesn't just toss this out to you with a take-it-or-leave-it attitude. Instead of expecting people to take a blind leap of faith and just hope this is real, God gives us examples to demonstrate his goodness. In verses 55, 3... Uh, in chapter 55, verses 3 through 4, it says, Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faith, faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the people. God is making promises 
to those who will heed his call. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. But then he mentions the faithful mercies shown to David. That's King David of Israel. David is just one example, but my what an example he is of the faithfulness and goodness of God who is calling out to draw people to himself. David was an incredibly godly man. God called him a man after my own heart, and that's what he was until he wasn't for a while. He was an incredibly wicked man until he repented. David listened carefully to the Lord until he didn't, and then he somehow forgot everything he knew until he repented. So David knew what it was to to be in need of God's mercy. He knew it as a child, repenting of his sin and coming to salvation. He knew it as a seasoned adult who was now guilty of murder and adultery. He knew what it was to need mercy, to have no other hope because he had failed so miserably. And Isaiah, still quoting God word for word, Behold, I have made him a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. God made him an example. Every part of David's life, his his glories and his failures and his sins, his stupidity and his wisdom, all of it reflects the majesty of his God. God used all of it. This is no carnival barker. This is the good and holy God who has proven his character over and over again, beginning with Adam and Eve, who he had mercy on despite their wickedness, beginning with them and continuing into the lives of many people that you know. He's proven many, proven himself in many lives changed lives, many of them in this room, stunning transformations. Some of them just a quiet, settled godliness that nobody seems to doubt. Some of them dramatic conversions like that of the Apostle Paul. Anybody who's willing to stop and listen be honest with themselves. Anybody who doesn't have an agenda to sin and keep sinning, but that's because they want to pretend they can do that without consequence, anybody will quickly find many examples of God's goodness, of Him fulfilling these very promises in life after life after life. The last sentence of this part of the text that is a quote God again makes his appeal very broad. He's speaking to the nation of Israel, the whole nation. And he makes them another promise as God's people. In verse 5, Behold, you will call a nation that you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Now, most of us in this room, maybe all of us, have been protected from war. All of us certainly have been protected from war on our own soil. We've had some terrorist attacks, but we have never been invaded. There hasn't even been a war on this soil soil since the Civil War. 
Israel had a very different history. We've got this mindset that we win. That would be a non-thing, well, even Korea, but we win. (laughs) And we always win here. Nobody messes with us here. (laughs) Israel had a completely different psyche because they got invaded almost every generation for their whole history. The only king that didn't know any war was Solomon. Only one I can think of, anyway. Didn't know any war. That's because David had cleaned him out by being at war almost his whole life. And so awareness of the hardship of war and the danger of being invaded was just part of the psyche. That was part of the culture in Israel. And this promise would have really resonated with those people. There's not going to be any more war. There's coming a time when God's people will be victorious over every enemy. Nations will come to you, but not to make war. They're going to come to give you honor. And they're going to do that because God himself has glorified you to the point that that's what they want to do. They feel this compulsion to come and give you honor. They want to be on your good side because God has blessed you that much. Right now, there's a great conflict going on between God and Satan, God's followers and Satan's followers. We, you know, there's, there's spiritual war. And a merciful God in this passage is calling out to men and women, boys and girls, saying, come over to the winning side. There's going to be a time When God's children have no more war because the war has been won, and everybody will come to you and give you honor. Be on that side. God is inviting his enemies to change sides, to live, to be blessed, to forsake the false hopes and the wasted efforts, and incline their ears to God and have life. Well, that's the end of the quote of God speaking directly. Next, the prophet speaks. Now, this is not any less inspired. God is the author of the whole book, but God makes it clear who's talking when, and we need to pay attention to that. So here's what Isaiah, the human being inspired by God, says to those who have just received this call directly, personally, from the Almighty. Verses 6 and 7. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah serves this God who calls and he's joining in this business of calling people to God. He's imitating God. He's urging people to be reconciled to God. God says, come to me, and he says, go to him. (laughs) And there are important characteristics to what Isaiah is doing that we can imitate. If we join this call, we're going to say the same kinds of things in the same kind of way. Notice, first of all, that that Isaiah is issuing his, his... call with urgency. And there is urgency. Verse 6 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. The opportunity to answer this call, to turn away from your sin and come to the Lord is finite. There'll be a day when that opportunity is past. Nobody knows when that'll be. It doesn't take much of a brain to realize it is so. People need to act while they have opportunity. And we need to urge them to do so and communicate the urgency. This needs to be done now. Time is of the essence. Act before it's too late. You don't know when it will be too late. Act today. If you're not going to act today and you're telling yourself, you know, after I have my fun, I'll do that. What's, what's going to change? If you won't do it now, why would you do it tomorrow? Come while you have time. We should also notice what Isaiah is calling for as he cries out to his neighbors. He's asking for very specific action that has to be a part of our message as we imitate our God. In verse 7, he says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord. How different is that from the common religious message. Isaiah's not saying, hey, do some good works. God will like that and you'll be okay. He's not saying try to be a good person. This is a call to make a clean break with the past. This is not a self-improvement book. Make a clean break. Forsake the way of wickedness. Forsake the thoughts of unrighteousness. This is a call to repentance. That's the one-word summary of what Isaiah is calling for. Repent, not just of your actions, but even of your wicked thoughts. Turn away from sinful acts and sinful thoughts and turn to the Lord. That's That last part is the action that proves it's actually repentance. Anybody can give something up for a little while. It doesn't mean your heart has changed. But if you stop doing those things because you hate them now and you turn to the Lord and you're seeking after Him now, walking with Him, that's what repentance looks like. It's not just avoiding bad things. It's living for the Lord. That's the message we have to be proclaiming. But it's important to notice that's not the whole message. Isaiah makes some promises, too, for those who will listen. He says, let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, and he will abundantly pardon. God has compassion. God grants pardon. God is faithful in those things to everyone who will repent. And that has to be a part of the message. Sure, you've got to tell them what they have to repent of. They have to understand they have a a problem, that they're in danger. If you don't give them the bad news, how will they ever want to repent? Ask somebody to, if they want to be saved, they might just say, from what? <laughs> what are you talking about? They got to know they have a problem. But that's not the end of the story. They have to give hope. One of the most beautiful descriptions of our hope is the first two verses of Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin 
and death. That's the promise of hope, that in Christ there will be no condemnation. How foolish it would be to give the bad news and leave that out. We have to offer the promise of hope that God has given. Even in a book so full of doom and gloom, that hope is so clear. This passage is not all of it, but it's a big piece of it. Same is true of all the prophets. No matter how bad the story they had to tell, there was always hope that was offered. But if you'll repent, but if you'll return to the Lord, this is what he'll do. And we need to do that too. We serve the God who calls people to himself this way. He has compassion. He has mercy. He's generous. He's engaging with people. He's calling them to come to him and live. And in just the way that Isaiah joined in God's call, that's what we're to be doing. Seek the Lord while he may be found. We're to be calling people to hope in Christ. You know, we have the full message now. We know details that Isaiah didn't know about how God made the provision so people could live. God does not overlook sin. That's the vain hope of so many. Well, he'll let it slide. I hope I did good enough. I hope he'll give me a break. He's never going to let any single sin go unpunished. And so the full message that we have now that Isaiah was looking forward to that was very shadowy in his day is that Jesus Christ came to the earth, lived a perfect life, offered his perfect life as a substitutionary sacrifice, took on the sins of all who would believe, and those sins were punished in him on the cross so that they are put away forever. They've been punished, and so they will not be punished in you who believe. And now we can proclaim the full message. We can point people to Christ himself, the ultimate example of God's goodness, even more compelling than what Isaiah understood. We exalt Christ, and he works in people's lives. Now, you've probably noticed that Isaiah is calling out to people who are not like he is. God is calling out to these people who are not listening Isaiah's calling out to those same people, and they are not like Isaiah is. This is the unavoidable nature of evangelism. People who are just like the believers are not objects for evangelism. They're not candidates for evangelism. If they're already like us, they don't need evangelism. And so we call out, by definition, to people who are not like us. And some things about their lives we might not even like at all. They have different values. They have different different loves. They have a different culture. And yet we're called to cry out to them, to engage them, to warn them of danger and to offer them hope. And some of them listen. And some of them are completely indifferent like you aren't even talking. And some of them get really angry and push back in various ways and blaspheme and malign you. 
Isaiah was no stranger to that last phenomenon of calling people and having them reject the message in various ways. It was just back in chapter 53 that he cried out about this stunning reality. That chapter opens with these words, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, there's a dichotomy there. You've got the people to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed. That is a vast number of people. Arguably, that's everyone on earth. You've seen something of the power of the Lord. You've seen something of His goodness. He causes His rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He he feeds people. The, the, The earth is abundant, whether you love Him or not. You get to eat. Out of all of the people that have seen some measure of the goodness and power of God, who has believed our message? Not many. Not many. Just as Jesus promised it would be, the way is narrow and few are they who find it. But we serve this God who calls people to himself, and we imitate him. We say, yeah, go to him and live. Forsake your wicked ways, forsake your unrighteous thoughts, and turn to the Lord and have life. He'll pardon you. He has compassion. Well, the message of this very popular text in Isaiah is pretty simple. But how you apply this message depends on whether you've done what Isaiah is saying, what God calls you to do. If you've not responded to God's call, there's only one helpful application of the message. Go to Him. Forsake your wicked ways and your unrighteous thoughts and turn to the Lord. Make a clean break with what you've been. Give up on all those selfish motives. Turn to the Lord. He promises to give you life. Believe Him and do what He said. For those of us who do belong to Him already, the, the application of this text is very different from that. We've already done that. We can rejoice in, the, in that, and we can rejoice in how He... He's fulfilled these promises in us and in people we love. But there's more to the application. We need to imitate Him. That's the primary, one of the primary things we need to come away with. That's what Isaiah's doing. That's what we ought to be doing. Call out to people who are not like you. Find a way to engage people who are not where they need to be people who are wasting their effort on all the wrong things, people who have some crazy ideas that make you kind of shudder, give them hope. The hope that comes only in Jesus. That's what we're to be about. May the Lord grant us success. Let's bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your compassion and goodness and grace and mercy that we see not just in this text, but in lives all around us and for many of us in our own lives, blessings that we have never deserved and that we don't yet deserve. 
and that we will never deserve. And yet you give them because you're gracious. We glorify you. We ask for your mercy in the lives of those who do not know you and do not trust you. Use your word to draw them to yourself. Use us to help call them to you and be glorified in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.